you probably don't need me to come by tonight to tell you that our world is lost. Nonetheless, I'm here. Our world is lost. We are living in an unusual day. We're living in a day like none of us have ever seen before. I never dreamed we would see things like we see today. Day, a day in which we live where sin is not only tolerated, but it is celebrated. Something's wrong when a society celebrates that which God says is an abomination unto him. Any sin that you want to pick, it's an abomination unto God because he is not for sin, but he wanted to deliver us from the captive of sin. And so we live in a lost world. Now I could talk about the world and all of the negative things of our society, but let me bring it a little closer home. Do you know that in the state of Tennessee, 73% of Tennesseans go to church seldom or never? Let me define seldom for you. Once a month. That's how the survey defined it. In 2021, American Belief Survey said 73% of Tennesseans go to church seldom or never. Now, when I pastor a church, it's mighty hard to grow a, a church when you got some once a month attenders. You, you need those weekly attenders, amen. You need folks who are committed and invested in the church and 73% don't really see church as a priority, I've been at the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board since 2017, and when I first came, the statistics I was getting were telling us that we had about 4 million lost people in the state of Tennessee. But more recently, as I have studied, I've had to go on an apology tour because, ladies and gentlemen, we're closer to 5 million lost people in Tennessee than we are four. So when I tell you we live in a lost world, our world is lost, but would you come home and realize that our world, our state is lost without Jesus Christ. It breaks my heart to even say of our beloved Tennessee that she is lost, but she's lost. And so I simply come to ask a question and seek to answer it from the word tonight. What are we gonna do with a lost what are we going to do with the lost world? The Apostle Paul obviously felt kind of the same way we do when we look around and see how lost our world is. And we see it so evident here in Romans 10 and verse 1. He says, my heart's desire, my earnest prayer is that my people, Israel, might be saved. These were He, he wasn't talking about somebody he didn't know. He wasn't talking about going to a foreign field he didn't know. He was praying for his people. He was concerned about his people, and he was so concerned that he prayed. And I say to you, the first thing we can do with the lost world is be burdened enough to pray for them. Amen. I said, we ought to be burdened enough to pray for them. Amen. Amen. If I repeat, I'm hunting a little help. I said, we ought to be burdened enough to pray for them. Amen. I mean, the least we can do is pray for those that are lost. I, I remember growing up in church, you'll have to forgive me, I, I've been a Baptist all my life and nine months before, and, and my dad was a pastor, my granddaddy was a pastor. I lived so close to the church growing up, I thought my bedroom was a Sunday school room most of my life. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so we've been to prayer, I've been to prayer meeting all my life, and, and I remember going to prayer meeting, and, and we would actually pray. 
Imagine that. I mean, we would pray. We had a list of folks that were lost and uh, I'm sorry, that were sick and bereaved and struggling. And then we had another list of folks that were lost. And we always prayed for all of those folks at prayer meeting. I, I went to pastor a church in a number, another state a number of years ago. And I got convicted because we had in our bulletin Wednesday night prayer meeting and we were doing everything but. You know, we take about 45 minutes of prayer requests. We'd pray for five and then howdy with each other for 10. And it's like, you know, we didn't really have prayer meeting. We took requests. And, and we need to pray. And so I got convicted and I, I said, we're going to start praying. I put out prayer boxes all over the church that people just come in and drop your prayer request in. And I said, we're going to come in. We're going to take a couple of minutes if there's something on your heart. And then we're just going to get on our knees for about 55 minutes and just pray. I'm going to put these boxes out. You just come grab a handful of requests and pray over them. And, and so that's what we did. And I grew that service down to about three. <laughs> I'm serious. And here's what the people who came said to me most often, Pastor. They'd say, Pastor, thank you for making me pray tonight. <laughs> Somehow that wasn't what I was going for. I, <laughs> I think I know what they meant, that they were appreciative for the opportunity. But something's wrong if I have to make the people of God pray. And something's wrong if the people of God aren't moved to pray for people who are lost. I'm convinced part of the reason we don't pray for lost folks is because we don't know lost folks. And the reason we don't know lost folks is we don't ever ask them if they know Jesus. Well, I'm a good Christian and I don't run around with those kind of people. And you're a what? You're a what? You're a good what? Christian? The word Christian, that name means to be like Christ. And the Bible said of Jesus, he's a friend of sinners. I, I would tell you that I'm just guesstimating that we don't know lost folks, but when I preach across the state of Tennessee, often I will ask the people in the congregation, everybody bow your head, and I'll say, hey, if you know somebody lost by name, just raise your hand, I wanna pray with you. And I promise you, less than this many times have I ever seen more than half of the congregation raise their hand. And it's usually not even half. What are we doing? What are we thinking about if we don't look around and find some folks who are lost that we can pray for? I, I remember as a young teenager, my dad was called to another church and we went to this new church. He's about to have the first revival of the church and he said, I'm the new pastor and I'm gonna preach my first revival. And uh, Brother Jeff, a lot of folks today would pass out when I tell you what I'm about to tell you. But he started on Sunday morning and ended the next Sunday night, preached every night. Can you imagine having revival that long? Amen, I know I miss it. Anyway, and so he, he was preaching it. And listen, we had revival. I mean, we didn't have a series of meetings. You all know the difference, amen. I mean, the Holy Spirit of God just sat down among us and people started getting saved. And, and I would go to prayer room. We, we had men's prayer room and women's prayer room every night before revival service. Now, in case I've lost you, the men's prayer room was a room where the men went and prayed. And the women's prayer room was a room where the women went and prayed. Thus, they were called the men's prayer room and the women's prayer room. I had lost you, have you with me? And so we'd go in there. I learned a lot about praying in the men's prayer room. The first thing I learned about praying in the men's prayer room was 
if you're called on to pray, you better get a good deep breath before you start because you got to outpray everybody in that room before we can get to amen. Some of y'all have never been to the men's prayer room, I can see. But I remember one night I came into church and, and, and everybody was abuzz. They were saying, Charlie's here, Charlie's here, Charlie's here. I, look, we were new. I ain't been there long. I'm like, well, praise the Lord. Who's Charlie? Nobody tells me. But Charlie's here. We go in the prayer room and don't you know, everybody in that prayer room knew who Charlie was because they prayed for Charlie. I didn't know who Charlie was or where he was, but he was getting prayed for. You know what I'm saying? And we went into worship and everybody, I still hear a buzz. Charlie's here. Charlie's here. Well, we get to the invitation that night and this man gets up about four rows back, walks down, grabs my dad. They stand there and talk a minute. Then they get down in the altar. My daddy opens the Bible. I kind of got a hint of what's going on because I've seen this before. And he opens his Bible and they stand up. My dad turns around, puts his arm around and said, this is Charlie. I'm like, there he is. And then he said, Charlie gave his heart to Jesus tonight. Man, that place went nuts. We moved from Baptist to Baptocostal. I mean, it got out of hand. They were swinging from the rafters. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I'm, I'm sorry, we dignified Baptists, y'all excuse me. I, we got beside ourselves and people were shouting and going on. And then I, I came to learn who Charlie was. Now, it was not unlike a lot of Baptist churches. He, he was kin to most everybody in there. And everybody else knew him because he was known in the community. But what I didn't know about Charlie was there were people in that church who had been praying for Charlie for 25 years to come to know Jesus. And they shouted, man, it was victory. Whoa, they were just out of hand. It was very unbaptistic, but it was exciting. You know, it was great. And, and you know why they were shouting? Because they were invested in Charlie's salvation. You ever see folks come to Jesus in our churches and we give a little courtesy shake and hand and, oh, that's great. I wonder if our excitement has been squelched because we have no investment in people coming to know Jesus. Is there anybody on your heart tonight? Is there anybody you know that needs Jesus? I will tell you this, if you don't know of anybody, I want to encourage you tomorrow, whenever you go and do whatever it is you do, wherever you go, if you'll look around, I will guarantee you that almost two out of every three people you, say, you see don't know Jesus. This past Thursday night, I preached down in Shelbyville. <laughs> Couldn't remember where we were. And, and I came out of the church and I told Gerald, I said, I need some water. I got to get me some water. So I pulled into this little gas station, and I call it a filling station, but my two boys, 23 and 27, said, that's a gas station. Well, it was a filling station when I was raised. Anyway, and I pull into the filling station, and I go in, and there's this man there, and he's, he's a big dude. I mean, I'm fairly good size, and he was bigger than me, okay? And he... he Anyway, he was pretty rough looking too. And, and I just looked at him and I said, this is in Shelbyville. Did I say Shelbyville? I said, has anybody told you Jesus loves you today? He said, he's, he's, no, no, no. I said, well, do you know that Jesus loves you? No, no. I, I said, do you believe Jesus will save you? He said, nobody's ever told me. 
That, that's not Asia. That's Shelbyville. Is anybody here? That was Shelbyville. We need to at least be burdened enough to pray for a lost world. I love what one of my coworkers says. How will we ever talk to people about God if we don't talk to God about people? God help us to be burdened enough to pray for a lost world. Secondly, we not only need to pray and be burdened enough to pray, but what are we going to do with this lost world? I say, secondly, we need to see them where they are. I said, we need to see them where they are. Look at verse two. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of that word. It simply means enthusiasm. They have an enthusiasm of God, but not according to knowledge. It means they talk a good case, but they don't know him. I'm telling you, I could bring Paul in here, the apostle Paul in here, and change his clothes to a sport coat, and he could walk in and preach this message tonight because it is so applicable to today. He said, my people have a knowledge of God, but it's not a knowledge that is in the Greek, it says epinosis, and it means a, a knowledge that is given through the Holy Spirit of God. And he said, they talk about God, but they don't know it. Now, you have to remember, his people were very religious. Matter of fact, even Paul said of himself, I'm a Pharisee among the Pharisees. I mean, he knew about religious activities. He knew about the rituals of religion, but he said, my people have an enthusiasm for that, but they don't know him. Let, let me go on because verse three further, further uh, exemplifies for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Now we got to stop right here just a minute. And I want to say something, two things. Number one, ignorant. I'm, I know where I am. Okay. I know where, if I was in East Tennessee, that's just a little above one syllable, ignorant. Am I telling the truth, Pastor? Yeah, ignorant. Ignorant. Amen. You liked the way I dressed that up, didn't you? The second thing I want to say about it is it's okay to be ignorant, but it's not okay to stay ignorant. Let me run that by again. It's okay to be ignorant, but it's not okay to stay ignorant. A lot of us parents will look at our kids, and, and probably most of us have it sometimes. Hey, ignorant. Hadn't you? Yeah, you have. You don't have to admit it. It's okay. I know you have. And you know what you're doing as a parent when you do that? You're indicting yourself. <laughs> because, <laughs> amen, God gave them to you. Teach them something. Do you know what it means to be ignorant? I'm going to help you. Ignorant means not knowing. That's all it means. Not knowing. So it's okay to not know. It's not okay to keep not knowing. <laughs> amen. Y'all are not with me. Anyway, and so... Paul said, for they being ignorant, not knowing what? God's righteousness. Now, what does it mean to be righteous? Righteous means, look, look at me and I will physically illustrate righteousness. Would y'all like to see this? I believe a picture's worth at least a thousand words. So some of y'all are like, amen, I hope you'll hurry. So watch. Would you like to see it again? Righteous. In the very basis meaning of righteousness, Righteous means to be upright. That's what righteous means. But understand, we're not just talking about being righteous physically. We're talking about the spiritual understanding of what it means to be righteous. And when we consider that, listen, it means to be able to stand upright in the presence of three-time holy God. Guess who can do that? Well, there's not one here except Jesus. 
Only he can stand upright. And so Paul said, my people, they have an enthusiasm, an excitement for God, and they don't really know him because they're ignorant to God's righteousness. And the next phrase said, going about to produce their own righteousness. So if you don't know about the righteousness of God, which makes one able to stand upright in the presence of holy God, then you go and try to manufacture it yourself. And that's what his people were doing. They did not know and understand the righteousness of God. So they were going about to produce their own righteousness so that they would be good enough. I'm going to heaven because I'm good. That, that was their mantra. I'm doing all the religious act. I'm keeping all of the traditional rights that I should of my religion. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do according to the law and I must be righteous. Just look at me. That's the world we're living in today as well. Just ask somebody when, when they hear about another person, hey, did you know so-and-so died? Yeah, they were my neighbor. Well, did they know Jesus? I tell you, it's the best neighbor I ever had. But did they know Jesus? Well, I tell you what, they never mowed over on my side of the property line. Great neighbor. Did they know Jesus? You know, they used to plant a garden and they'd share their tomatoes with us every summer. But did they know Jesus? Great neighbor. Great neighbor will not get you to heaven. Man seems to have this standard of what good is. You know what our society thinks? Well, if I'm a little bit better than I am bad, then I'll go to heaven when I die. That's not how it works. Good people don't go to heaven. I said good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. And so we live in a day just like Paul where people are going around to be good enough. Listen, they've decided that the church isn't even important to help me be good enough. That's why 73% of Tennesseans go once a month or not at all because that doesn't even measure up anymore in their standard. We live in a day where people are trying to be good enough. Ladies and gentlemen, what can we do with this lost world? We need to look at them and see they are trying with futility. We need to see them and not hate them, but pity where they are. We need to look down their long hypocritical noses no more. And we need to love them to Jesus the Christ. The Bible says here in verse three that they're going about to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What was their belief? Their belief was, if I keep the law of the old covenant, then I will produce my righteousness. And the only way to be righteous is to keep the law. And so they went about to keep the law. And guess who succeeded? Nobody. Nobody could keep the law. Let, let, me, let, me, let me explain to you what, what, what the law is. See, the law, well, let, let me tell you this. I, I, I shaved today. I have a little bit of little beard. Now, anyway, don't worry about that. I shaved over here today. And, and when I shave, I look in the mirror so that I can see where I'm shaving. But when I finish shaving, I sometimes will have a little bit of shaving cream left on my face. And so I lean over like you brothers and, and, and I put my face on the mirror and I wipe all that off. Is that what you do? 
Y'all don't do that? Of course you don't do that. We take a rag and wipe. Because a mirror is not there to clean my face. It's simply there to expose my face. The law is like a mirror. And when you look at the law and judge your life by the law, it simply reveals that you came up short. The, my Lord, the law was never given to fix our problem. It wasn't there to wipe our face. It was simply there to expose us. That's why Jesus came and fulfilled the law. He did not abolish it. No, he fulfilled it. That means he kept it all. Thus, he and he alone is righteous. Is anybody with me yet? And so, so the law which man was trying to keep was simply exposing that they could not reach that level of God righteousness that they wanted to reach. But yet they tried and they tried and they tried in their futility. And if you went with me to Israel today, you could see those Orthodox Jews with those curls coming off the side of their head, their prayer shawls hanging out from under their coat. Why? Because they want everybody to see their they're righteous. And it's going to take more than that to prove righteous in the presence of three-time holy God. And it's going to take more than what you can do or what I can do or what anybody out there can do. Ladies and gentlemen, everybody that dies does not go to heaven. Do you hear what I'm saying? Listen, we watch the television and they'll give us names of people of great notoriety who die and they'll say, oh, they're looking down from... Listen, just because you die don't mean you go to heaven. You want me to tell you a staggering fact? 35% of Tennesseans believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. 35% believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. I'm one of those. But do you understand what that statistic tells us? 65% of Tennesseans either don't believe there's a heaven or they believe there's some other way to get there. I love when people will look at me, well, I'm as good as you, preacher. Great, that'll get you to hell. <laughs> Who am I? I'm not the standard. Well, I want to be as good as him. I want to be as good as her. That does nothing for you. The standard is Jesus the Christ. Paul said, I, I know about all these religious activities and trying to be righteous because I have done it. I have sought to be righteous, but it was not until I was on the road to Damascus and it was noonday, but for me it became like the midnight hour because I was blinded when God showed up and said, why, why are you persecuting me? And he met Jesus that day and everything changed for Paul. And he realized all of his works, well, he said, it's all like dung, refuse just compared to knowing him. Here's what the prophet said, Isaiah, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Ladies and gentlemen, what are we gonna do with this lost world? I plead with you tonight, 
Let us see them where they are. They are working with works of futility that only lead to hell. The proverb says, there is a way that seems right unto man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Let us love them to Jesus. So what will we do with this lost world? First, I submit to you, we ought to be burdened enough to pray. Secondly, we need to see them where they are. And thirdly, look at verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. What are we gonna do with this lost world? Be burdened enough to pray. See them where they are and point them to Jesus. Why do we point them to Jesus? Because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. See, Jesus came and fulfilled the law so that man wasn't, listen, man wasn't seeking to fulfill the law for his righteousness because that wouldn't work. Man couldn't keep the law, but Jesus fulfilled it for man. I don't know if you understand. Let me see if I can explain. When I was just a boy, I got on my knees at an RA camp, Royal Ambassadors. Anybody know about RAs? Let me see you. Amen. I knew I was with some folks that I loved right there. Amen. And I was at an RA camp, and on the last night, is a Thursday night, South Mountain Camp over in the mountains of North Carolina. I got on my knees that last night, and I said, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I choose Jesus. <laughs> I know that don't sound like much, but I haven't got over it yet. Just leave me alone. And I said, Jesus, Jesus, I believe you are the son of God who died on the cross and shed his blood for my sin. Would you forgive me of my sins? And Lord, I believe you rose from the dead on the third day. Would you come into my heart and be Lord of my life? And when I said that, God the Father heard my prayer. He heard my prayer and he looked at me and the first thing he saw was my righteous account was bankrupt. He said, now, now, you know, here's, here's a boy and he's asking for something, but look at him. He has no righteousness in and of himself. He's overdrawn in his righteous account. But God heard my prayer of faith in Jesus and God reached back into his righteous account that was full and overflowing. Amen. It was, mm, y'all don't shout me down. It was full and overflowing. He made a withdrawal. He made a withdrawal from his account and he turned around and made a deposit into my righteous account that was overdrawn bankrupt, but he made a deposit. And tonight I stand before you righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not because of what I've done, but because of what he did, not because of who I am, but because of who he is. See, I'm righteous tonight, not because I'm a preacher or not because I was saved that night. I'm righteous because in my salvation, Jesus imparted his righteousness to me. And there is no other way on the face of planet earth to be righteous in the presence of three-time holy God except to receive righteousness from the Lord. The Bible tells us he imputes his, his righteousness. He imputes parts his right. It's like a robe. He talks about a robe of right. It's like he puts a coat of righteousness on. Not one we earn, not one we deserve, but one he freely gave so that we could be righteous. One of these sweet days in the presence of our God, I will be standing there in his presence. 
I said, I'll be standing there in his presence, not because I'm worthy, because my righteousness are filthy rags, but I will stand in his presence because God the Father will see me through the blood of his son, Jesus, who imparted his righteousness to me. Ladies and gentlemen, salvation through Jesus Christ is available to all who call upon him. What can we do with this lost world? I submit we gotta pray for them. I submit to you, we need to see them where they are, but the only hope that they have is that we point them to Jesus. See, when the anti-Christian activities are occurring, point them to Jesus. When blasphemy is heard about our Lord, point them to Jesus. When chaos and confusion is all around us, point them to Jesus. When destruction and division is being propagated, point them to Jesus. When evil is exalted, point them to Jesus. When they're fighting and killing in the streets, point them to Jesus. When the God-haters are hating, the liars are lying, and the sinners are sinning, point them to Jesus. When the devil is instigating and justice is nowhere to be found, point them to Jesus. When killing people is considered okay, point them to Jesus. When lies are told is truth and truth is told is lies, point them to Jesus. When men and women don't know what gender they are, point them to Jesus. When the whole world seems obstinate toward the gospel of Jesus Christ, point them to Jesus. When the priorities of society are anti-righteous, point them to Jesus. When the ruthless and ridiculous are doing all the talking, point them to Jesus. In the midst of a sinful people, Point them to Jesus. When times are tumultuous, unrighteousness reigns and virtue is extinct, point them to Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot fix a lost world. We cannot change a person's life. We can't answer for everybody's sins and fix them, but we can point them to Jesus. And not only can we point them to Jesus, we must point them to Jesus because he is the only hope that our world has. He's the only hope our Tennessee has. I read the story about two men who had committed crimes and they had been sentenced to death. They were sitting on death row and the day came for their execution and the king of the land, he began to review their case that morning and when he got finished reviewing the case, for whatever reason, the king said, bring me a piece of parchment paper and he took out his twill pen and he dipped it in ink and he began to write on that piece of parchment and he wrote both those men's names and he said, you have been pardoned from all of your crimes. You will not die today. You've been pardoned. You can go home free. Signed, the king. He rolled it up. He dipped his ring in hot wax. He sealed that parchment paper, handed it to the messenger and said, quickly, get it to the executioner. The messenger went quickly quickly and he got to the executioner who was about to carry out the execution of these two men and he handed this paper to the first man and the man read it and he saw his name and he saw what the king said and he said this, can you believe somebody would play a trick like this on me? I'm about to die. I'm about to be killed. I've done my crime and I'm about to die and somebody's playing a joke. 
He handed it to the next man. He read his name and he read closely every word and he saw that it was signed by the king and he said, whoa, I'm free. You know what the difference was? The second man believed the king and the first man didn't. Ladies and gentlemen, that's as simple as I know how to put it. If you'll believe Jesus, you can have eternity with him. But if you don't believe him, you will have a Christless eternity in a place called hell. So how do I come to know Jesus? The Bible is very clear. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? It means he's the son of God born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, went to the cross and arms stretched out, nails pierced his hands and his feet, spear pierced his side, a crown of thorns pierced his brow, and he shed his life's blood on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. If you believe that in your heart and confess, see, it's not just about talk. It's not just your words. It's your heart. As the word says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's believing so much your mouth cannot help but give testimony. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Let let, let me see if I can illustrate it. It's like you're walking this way and you're living for yourself. You're living for satisfaction. You're living in your sin. And you realize one day that just doesn't satisfy. So you turn your back on that and turn your eyes on the Savior and say, I believe Jesus. It's called repentance. You just turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Hey, if you've never asked Jesus into your heart tonight, it would be the highlight of my day to introduce you to him. Would you come? Hey, we're not going to make you go outside in a parking lot, shave your head and sell roses or nothing like that. (laughs) We'd just like to introduce you to Jesus. Our pastor will be here. I'm here. Come take one of us by the hand and say, I want Jesus. We understand what that means. And we'll just open the word to Romans 10, just a few verses down from what we've looked at. And we'll show you, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Would you come? Oh, I'd love to introduce you to Jesus. Many of you who sit here tonight say, well, I already know Jesus. Praise God. You're my brother and my sister. We family. I hope you like me because we're going to spend eternity together. <laughs> Amen. You just think I'm loud now. <laughs> anyway. My brother, sister in Christ can ask you a question. Are you praying for somebody that's lost? Do you care that you got family members going to hell? Are you concerned that your neighbors are going to hell? Do you know you got coworkers and classmates, people that go to the grocery store, they're lost without Jesus. Do you care? you got somebody lost on your heart in just a moment when we begin to have our invitation you may want to find a place at the altar and just get on your knees for a minute and pray and say God I just want to pray for and just call their name out before God some of you say well I can't get down there and kneel well just come and sit on this front row there's just something strong about coming to God's altar somebody sits here tonight and you may say brother rock I'm I'm running through the Rolodex of my mind and I can't think of anybody that I know right now that's lost. 
And I just want to say to you, whether it be at the altar or at your seat, would you be willing tonight to bow your head and say, dear God, would you just bring me in touch with somebody that needs to hear about you? Lord, would you just bring my path to cross somebody's path that needs to hear the good news about you? What are we going to do with this lost world? We ought to be burdened enough to pray for We need to see her where she is. And we need to point them to Jesus. Because Jesus is the answer. Father, thank you for meeting with us tonight. I am in awe of a God such as you who loves us with an everlasting love and who made a way for us to miss hell and make heaven. God, I pray tonight if there's one in this place in the sound of my voice that's never met you, I pray tonight will be the night that they say yes to you, that they say I want Jesus in my heart. Oh God, I pray somebody that doesn't know you would come and receive you tonight. And oh God, for those who know you, may our hearts be burdened as never before for a lost world around us that's so desperate for you. And oh God, would you bring us in contact with those people around us that are closest to hell that we would say a good word for Jesus and we would point them to you. Oh God, work in our hearts. Give us this beloved state of Tennessee for your name. Save Tennessee, Lord. Save our nation, Lord. Save our world. For only you can. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.